I finished uh, reading a book about a week ago entitled David and Goliath. I don't know if you've heard about it. You've certainly heard about the story in the Bible, but that's not what this is about. It's written by a man named Malcolm Gladwell, and he's the man who wrote the book Blink. Have you heard of that? Or The Tipping Point? Famous author. And uh, this book is about the power of underdogs and how oftentimes underdogs defeat the favored ones. And it asks the question, why? Because as you know in the story in the Bible of David and Goliath, David, the little kid, beats the giant. The giant armed with all the sophisticated military stuff and David with a slingshot. And David defeats Goliath. And then the rest of the book shows example after example of underdogs who beat the overdogs and then asks the question, why? Here's one that just startled me. Do you know historically in the last 200 years how often the large nation defeats the small nation in a war? By large, I mean 10 times larger, 10 times wealthier, 10 times more military equipment. What percentage of time the overdog beats the underdog? Do you know what that number is? You would think it is 100%. It is not. It is 70%. Only 70% of the time in the last 200 years does the super superior country beat the super inferior country. Only 70% of the time. But when the inferior country, militarily, economically, in all other ways, uses guerrilla warfare tactics, it's the other way around the underdog wins two-thirds of the time. If you don't believe it, you should know better. You're an American. Think of Vietnam. And if you have any sense of your of history at all, think of Afghanistan. They've routed the Russians. They've routed the Americans. They route everybody. A bunch of people with beards and guns sitting in caves. They kill us all. Why? The underdog usually defeats the bigger power unless they use conventional weapons. And remember the story of David and Goliath. Goliath said, hey, come on, let's have hand-to-hand combat, in which case David would have been squished like a fly. But David said, not on your life, dude. I'm not, used, I'm not going hand-to-hand with a guy as big as you are. David uses artillery against infantry, and he wipes him out. Now, over the last week, we dealt with one of the most depressing parts of the Bible. As you know, last week, if you were here, we, we t- talked about how the, Paul speaks about this incredible battle that he has with sin. He says, I, I, I know what's right to do. I want to do what's right. I even delight in doing what's right, but I find myself often doing what's wrong. And then he gets to the end of the chapter and he goes, what a wretch I am. What hope in the world do I possibly have? How can I ever win this battle against the giant of sin that dwells in my flesh? How can I do it? Is there hope? And now we come to Romans chapter 8, which is considered by many the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Here's what it is called. These are quotes. The Bible is called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. 
It is the Holy of Holies. Or it is called the Tree of Life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. Or it's called the highest peak in the mountains of God's Word. Or this one. Romans chapter 8 is the greatest passage within the greatest book in the world. Because it is going to tell the story and tell us how this battle that we have against our flesh, which we can't get rid of until we go to heaven, how this battle, even though it feels like we can never win, there is victory. There's victory, and it's going to tell us about how that victory is attained. Now, you probably don't know this because you've probably not been looking at it, but now we're in the midpoint of the book of Romans. And what you may not have noticed is that the Holy Spirit, which is going to be the focus of this chapter, the Holy Spirit is mentioned only four times up till now. Hardly ever mentioned. Jesus is mentioned all the time. God the Father is mentioned all the time. The Holy Spirit is hardly ever mentioned until Romans 8. And now the Holy Spirit is going to be mentioned 21 times. 21 times in this one chapter. It is going to be the primary theme of Romans chapter 8. And in this chapter, when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it is not going to tell us much about who the Holy Spirit is. That goes for other places in the Bible. It's going to tell us what the Holy Spirit does, and particularly what the Holy Spirit does for people who are in Christ, which means Christians. And so I invite you to the Holy of Holies in the Word of God. And by the way, any of us who stand behind pulpits with God's Word, when we come to Romans 8, we feel like we're about this tall because it is so much greater than we could ever begin to even communicate. It's a very humbling passage, because it's far greater than we could ever communicate. But let's do our best. Let's look today at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 17. And the theme, as, as Regina told us about this morning, is no condemnation. We're going to see what now the Holy Spirit does to help us in this battle against the flesh and to enable us to live lives of victory based on, as Carrie's song told us, who we really are. That's the theme of Romans chapter 8. Now, again, you probably won't notice it, but it's very unusual in a book of the Bible that has so few commands. And this chapter does not have many commands or what are called imperatives. An imperative is someone God says, do this or don't do this. It's not going to tell us that. Rather, the victory over sin with the power of the Holy Spirit has much more to do with how we see things, our attitude, and then our response to God. Not full of commands. God, by the way, is not big on commands. He's far bigger on who we are. And just think of what that means for us as, as people. Once you know who you are and you really believe that, the, the behaviors come. So the key is knowing who we are. So we're going to start with this incredible statement. Therefore, 
Well, gotta stop there <laughs> because you can't go beyond therefore until you know what it is therefore. Why do we have the word therefore? Well, he's obviously going back to what just what he just said. What a wretch that I am! Who will save me from this body of death? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. That is probably one of the most joyous declarations to be found anywhere in the Bible. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, Ever since the resurrection of Jesus, condemnation is, is, is not part of a Christian's life. Why? Well, let's look why. It's going to tell us why. The next verse. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Um, The Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of life, set us free from the law of sin and death. How? How did this happen? Well, he's going to tell us. For what the law was powerless to do. Remember what the law does? The law defines sin. It tells us the nature of God. And the law increases sin. Because when the law is combined with our flesh and the rebellion of our flesh, it, when those two get together, you've got dynamite. And it blows up in our lives. But the law cannot make us better people. It cannot make us grow in Christ because the law was powerless to do. It was weakened by our flesh. Law plus flesh means rebellion. That's what it means. Like we talked about last week, prohibition and and just say no to drugs and the anti-tobacco or the anti-smoking ads. They don't work. Why? Because you add law to the human rebellious flesh and you get the opposite of what you want. The law couldn't do it. What did God do? God sent his son. Wow. Why in the world would God do that? You see, the Bible says, well, I mean, you, if, if I was God, I'd send my son to a bunch of nice people, you know, who when he shows up, they say, oh, how nice you are. We're so glad you're here. And just treat him with great dignity and respect and love and all that. That's not what happened, as you know. The exact opposite. He lived 30 years of his life in total obscurity. He could have been here in Riverton, Wyoming, and you would never have had a clue that this is God in your midst. No one knew it except for his mom. That's all. Maybe his dad, but his dad's probably gone by now. Joseph, his his stepfather. No one knew. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God showing up and walking the streets of Riverton and People say, oh, he doesn't look like anything special. (laughs) Who's that bum? You know? That was God. 30 years of that. And then he he comes out saying, I am the Messiah. They go, oh, no, you're not. You're not following our rules. You're not hanging out with the right people. You hang out with bad people. If you were really the Messiah, you'd hang out with the likes of us. You'd be in church every week. He was hanging out with some pretty bad people. You know who? Gluttons, drunkards, prostitutes, and sinners. That's what it says. 
God? Yeah. See, God sent his son. Now, God could have sent a ghost, Casper the friendly ghost. But he didn't send Casper the friendly ghost. And by the way, you may not know this, but the very first heresy of the church was the belief that Jesus was a ghost, not Casper, Christ, the ghost, the friendly ghost. That's the first. You see, the first heresy of the church was not the denial of Jesus' divinity. It was a denial of his humanity. They said he wasn't a real person. He was just a ghost. He looked like he was real, but he wasn't real. He said, no, God sent his son in the likeness of, flesh, of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh. Then he would have been, he couldn't be our savior, but like us. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, every way. But he didn't sin. He never succumbed to sin as we do all the time. He never did. Why? So that he would be the sin offering. He would then offer his life as the sacrifice for our sin. And so when he did so, and we then, by faith, participate in that sacrifice. Guess what happens to condemnation? It's gone. There can be no condemnation. Why? Because in Jesus, the law has been fulfilled in full. He condemned sin in the flesh. So, what's the next line say? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be partially met in us. No, you didn't catch that. It doesn't say partially. It says fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Wow. So what does the, what does the Holy Spirit do? What, what? He, he's the one that when we are Christians, which means the main term for a Christian in the Bible, by the way, is not Christian. It is in Christ one. Someone who's in Christ. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit then takes this in Christ and activates that in our lives. So we start to understand at a heart level that we're in Christ. And the condemnation that our sins should produce has been paid in full. Who is the, how does that become part of our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit does that. You've heard of the, the law of double jeopardy. The law of double jeopardy means that, that you cannot be tried twice for the same crime. We can't be tried again because our innocence has been declared by God. We are just as if we've never sinned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. St. Augustine lived around the year 400. He said this or wrote this. Law was given that grace may be sought. Grace was given that law might be fulfilled. What grace does, I mean, what law does is it shows us we don't meet the law. And it makes us hungry for God's unconditional love. And what does God's grace do? God's grace then reminds us that the law has been completely fulfilled. 
No true believer will ever suffer condemnation because the verdict of innocence has already been proclaimed in the divine court and it cannot be changed. That's the truth. And who does that work? The Holy Spirit. The problem is, if I asked every one of you and if I asked myself, we live with condemnation all the time. A sense of condemnation. Oh, I screwed up again. I failed again. I'm, I'm a miserable, whatever it may be. But then God has placed at inside of us a little voice. If we would only listen to it, who said, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we fail, but you do not need to condemn yourself. Some of us have failed in huge ways. We've made a mess of our lives, but his mercies are new every morning. We get up every morning. Well, we have a clean, well, we don't have a clean slate every day. We've got a complete, if we were in heaven right now and God was keeping a list of all of our sins, guess what? It's empty. It's empty. He does not keep a, a record of our sins. It's done. It's gone. All it has is in front of it, paid in full. That's all it says. But you know what he does keep a record of? No record of our sins. He does keep a record of every single step of faith that we've ever taken. Every single one is recorded. For every person in Christ, every single thing that no one in the world knows but God alone, every single step of faith we've ever taken, every time we've sought to obey and follow Jesus, every time is all recorded, all of it. And God has never missed one thing. And the Holy Spirit is given by God to remind us of these truths. The problem is, we don't listen. But that's only the start. Because, you see, as we live in these bodies, our flesh screams. Our flesh screams, feed me. Feed me food, feed me sex, feed my ego, feed my desire for things, feed me. And it screams it all the time. And so the Holy Spirit now inside of us that God gave us is countering that constant screaming. Here's what the Bible says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. My flesh screams, I love food. And I, especially from Wisconsin, I love ice cream. I would like to eat it every day. In fact, I'd like to eat it three times a day. Butter pecan is my preferred flavor. It screams that. And then, as our bodies scream, our minds become fixated on what the body is screaming. And we set our minds on what our flesh screams. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So obviously what we're dealing with here is our brain. It goes on. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. 
He goes on. You see, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Wow. That is what what this body screams at us all the time. It centers its thoughts and its affections upon our own self, what we think is in our best interest. We seek our own gratification. it It preoccupies our mind. It's the priority of our mind. It's what we concentrate upon. It's what we think about. It's our absorbing interest. And a good question to ask ourselves, of course, would be is, where... What do you think about most? Your personal success? How to get out of trouble? The the, the appetites of your body? Politics? Boy, that absorbs a lot of people. Media? What is it that absorbs our, our minds? And here, this text of Scripture tells us this is what will happen to you if, in fact, your mind becomes, prioritizes this body of ours. What happens is you are are fundamentally estranged from God, and it will create misery, and ultimately, it it will create death. Because your destiny is determined by where you set your mind. What do we choose to think about? Do we, how often do I, how often do you consciously shift the focus of your mind from a path that you know isn't going to get you anywhere except bad to the promptings of the Spirit inside of you that can only lead you to things that are good? That's the choice that we have to make. You see, the development of a, of, a, of, a, of a godly mindset, aided by the Holy Spirit, is to say no to the, the screams of the flesh and yes to the yearnings of God's Spirit. One leads to misery, one leads to peace, one leads to death, one leads to life. Well, what, what does that look like in, 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 in life? Not the negative, the flesh-controlled life, but now the spirit-controlled life. What does it look like? Here's what comes next. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. As an in-Christ one, you do not center your life on the screams of your flesh. Though those screams still, they still scream, and they scream a lot, and they scream loud, and we often succumb to them, and some of those screams are not wrong. But if you live your life in that realm, that means that's what preoccupies you. That's your priority. You live your life in that realm. That's the flesh, but there's another realm. There's the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, They don't belong to Christ. Because inasmuch as you could say a definition of a Christian is one that's in Christ, you could also say a definition of a Christian is one that has the Holy Spirit. Um, It's interesting, in in the many years I served as a pastor in Longmont, 26 years, 
I would often get phone calls, and uh, people were checking out the church to see if they wanted to come. Phone call sounds rather antiquated, doesn't it? But um, they would call me up, and the first question they would ask me oftentimes is, are you a spirit-filled church? Now, I knew what they were asking, but that's not how I answered them. What, what are they asking, by the way? When they, when they say, are you a spirit-filled church, what are they asking? Do you speak in tongues? That's what they're asking. That's their question. And if, of course, if I say, are you a spirit-filled church? I could say no, which is a, a really dumb answer. Or I could say yes, but I could mislead them if they have a certain question in mind. And then I would say, oh, if I understand the Holy Scriptures correctly, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You can resist his filling. You can quench the Holy Spirit, yes. But the, but the essence of a Christian is that we have the Holy Spirit in us. Someone used the expression of this, what if you bought a Porsche that could go 250 miles an hour on Wyoming's freeways? Good, don't do that. Anthony, don't catch us, by the way. Um, and yet, you drive it at 25 miles an hour. Even on the freeway. Of course, you'd be in trouble, but... That's what it is. We have the Holy Spirit. We're Porsches. We can go 250 miles an hour. Keep it to 80 on the freeway. But, but we drive at 25 miles an hour. Does that mean that that Porsche can't go 250? Oh, it still can. But we, we've limited that. That's what the Holy Spirit is like. Well, if we don't want to push the gas pedal down, that's okay. But that doesn't mean he's gone. The engine's still there. And we have a power source that's unbelievable behind us. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But it goes on. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Oh, it doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We still do. But the beauty is, inside of us is the spirit, not of condemnation, rather the spirit of life. And where does that spirit come from? Look at the next verse. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This Holy Spirit that lives in us, is the spirit that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a lot of power. That's 250 mile an hour engine on a Porsche. But we drive at 25 sometimes. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It gives us the power to, to live in the realm of the spirit, not devote our lives to the realm of the flesh. But the last thing, that's going to be, he's going to say, is the best of all. Because now, the, the last thing in this part of the passage that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit now is going to assure us that we are the adopted children of God. And here's verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit of God, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Look at this now. The Spirit you received, oh yeah, the next one there. Yeah, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Daddy! That's the familiar term that a a child would say to a father. Or a a similar one is the, the child's first words, like, I love when my grandchildren, they call me Papa. It's one of the early words. Maybe the first one you learn is Mama, and then Papa. That's the similar We are God's children. And the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit does inside of us is give us the sense that we are the adopted children of God, so much so that we can address this holy, righteous, perfect God as Papa, Daddy. A a term of incredible intimacy and familiarity. Remember Jesus just before he was crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Daddy, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. It's the words of our our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on. The Spirit himself testified with our spirit that we are God's children. What a privilege. And if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If the Apostle Paul's not trying to paint a picture that all is rosy for those who are following Jesus Christ, because it is not. And in fact, if you're, well, this is what the Bible says all, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, not some, Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a given. Why? Because we are in the process as Christians of becoming like Christ. And if you are in any sense like Christ, you will get what Christ got. Misunderstood, falsely accused, perhaps betrayed and denied, never to the extent that Jesus was. But in small measure, yes, we will get it. Why? Because We're followers of Christ. But it's not just the sufferings. It's the glory as well. So the Holy Spirit does these things for us. So let me try to summarize in practical terms. What does fleshly living look like from this passage? First of all, the loudest voices one listens to are the impulses of one's own flesh. For pleasure, hedonism. For stuff, materialism. Or for one's ego, egotism. Those are the voices we listen to most. Our mindset and our worldview is shaped by the desires of my flesh, my body. Hedonism, egotism, materialism. That's what shapes my worldview. And then consciously or or unconsciously, the prayer of our life is, my will be done. That's the prayer of our life. Knowingly or unknowingly, one's attitude and lifestyle become hostile to God and rebellious against God's law. 
the law that's going to stimulate something in us, and we want to disobey God. And then while thinking that rebellion against God is the ultimate freedom, one becomes enslaved, and death is the result. That is not a good path. But there's an alternative. Here's the alternative path. This is the path of, of living in God's spirit. The voice we tune into is the still, small voice of God. And when we do so, we become aware of what the Spirit desires. And then our mindset and our worldview are are shaped by the truth of God's Spirit or the truth of God's Word. That's what shapes the way we look at life. And then consciously and sincerely we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And since we're no longer fighting against the external application of God's law, the God's law becomes internalized and life-giving. We love the, the, the we, we, we end up following the law, we don't even try to do so. And then while being led by the Spirit, we have a sense that we are God's children and we see God as Daddy, one who really loves us. And as children, we become temporal sharers of Christ's sufferings, but eternal sharers of Christ's inheritance. And the end game in this life is peace. And in the next life, eternal life with God himself. That's a good deal. And as Christians, we still can play the game of choosing which one of these we will listen to. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Number one. Honestly, which nature do you feed the most? The flesh or the spirit? The story is told about a a man who owned two dogs, and these dogs were always fighting against each other. And one day a friend asked the man, which dog usually wins the fight? And the man answered, well, the dog I feed the most. And that's the one that will win the fight, the dog I feed the most. Which mindset do we cultivate? I went online today, and this was horrible. Do you know how much time we spend a day with screens? Television, smartphone, computer, tablet, or other device. You know what the average is right now? Six hours and 43 minutes a day. That's the norm. That means over your lifespan, you will spend almost 8,000 days of your life looking at a screen. Now, every single poll will tell us that hardly any of us as Christians, it's not true of you people, but there's hardly any Christians in America today that have a Christian worldview. They say the percentage among millennials is 2%. Why? (laughs) That's why it's the dumbest question I've ever heard. Duh. If you spend six hours and 43, six hours, 43 minutes every day looking at screens and maybe one hour every couple of weeks at a church or reading the Bible, duh, which one of which world are you going to have? That's pretty easy. 
How do you, how do you counter that? It, it's impossible. That's what we're trying to do now in church. It's so, why it's difficult. We're trying to counter an incredibly slickly packaged bit of propaganda that we watch incessantly with a few boring sermons. <laughs> no, that's not how you learn to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We have to be quiet. We have to read God's Word. We have to meditate on what God says is true. We have to be with God's people, iron sharpening iron. That's what we need to do. Which destiny do you want the most? Do you want a destiny of maybe temporary fun, some pleasure, some stuff, some stoking of your ego? That, that, that's really pleasant for a little while. It doesn't last long, though. Or do you want a life, a life of, of purpose, impact, and peace? Which destiny do we want? And ultimately, which prayer do we pray? I don't do it every day. But you may sound, this might sound like I'm a kindergartner Christian, and I think I probably am. But almost every day I pray, at the end of the day, our Father who art in heaven, holy is thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive people who sin against us. Oh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? The answer is obviously none. If then you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's what Jesus said. In other words, God loves it. He's thrilled when you say, oh, give me, let me hear the power, the words of the Holy Spirit and follow his leading because of who I am. Who am I? Who are you? We're saints. Let's pray. Oh, wow, it's quite a... <laughs> Amazing to think of who we are as saints. We're chosen. We're not forsaken. We are who you say we are. Oh, Father, what a privilege to be people who can say that there is for us no condemnation and who can call you the holy God, Daddy, and who can walk in a world that's got all kinds of twists and turns with a sense of peace and purpose. Oh, what privileges. I pray as a result of this little time together today that this body of your believers might 
coalesce into a group of people empowered by your spirit who faithfully walk with you and to see the great privilege that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing again. I was going to say Carrie's song, but I'm going to say God's song, if you will. So stand, and we're going to sing again um, that we're, and hopefully we'll take this in. Who are we? Who are we, by the way? Saints. Let's sing.